0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Talking Shot. I am Ross Grieve. I'm Matt Jacobs, and this week we're joined by our very first press photographer that we've had on uh, on the show. He is a press and commercial photographer. He's even won the British Press Awards back in 2006. He gets around the place, uh, worked for pretty much every agency I think you can name across the board. Welcome, Edmund Terracopian.
1: Greetings. Welcome, uh, Edmund. Welcome. Good
0: welcome to, be to the here. world of isolation.
1: Yes, yes. It's, <laughs> and a
0: remote podcasting.
1: <laughs> it's, it's good to get out virtually. Yeah. So, yeah, good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: So um, how have you uh, found it, Ed? I mean, we've been saying this last few weeks quite a bit, but being a press photographer, I'm sure you're getting around more than most people will.
1: Yeah, being a being a press guy, you know, we're journalists are on the list of key workers. So uh, as long as we're working on stories to do with Coronavirus, you know, we've got uh, ability to move around and, and work. But of course, you know, that work is is limited. So, you know, I'm certainly not out and about anywhere near as much as I used to be. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm kind of pretty much isolated, but probably once or twice a week, I, I do sort of get out and, and do some work. But, uh, you know, newspaper assignments are well down, of course, All commercial and PR work is gone. Any sort of social mm-hmm. sort of photography work is, is gone as well. So all of that is on pause. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess being a key worker, I've, I've got some leeway. But, you know, we also have to be responsible, you know, just because we're on a list of key workers, it doesn't mean that uh, we can't sort of get the virus or transmit the virus and stuff. So there still has to be a huge element of responsibility um, and not sort of, you know, flaunt it just because, you know, we can. So
0: I'm sure you've seen um, some pretty interesting stuff. I mean, just to give listeners a... An idea Edmund's based in London I live in in West Wales and uh, quite a rural area and I get quite excited if someone drives down the road and you know <laughs> whereas uh, you've got you know you're you're surrounded by people and built, built up area and everything so hmm. you know that's a completely different way to tackle it but the way you got into photography dialing it right back with you is quite interesting because you very nearly didn't go down the path of photography did you you had something else planned
1: yeah, the, the original plan was was medicine. I uh, I was very very attracted to to medicine and, and specifically surgery. Oh well. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of where my head was at and where my aim was at. And I was doing chemistry and biology A levels at high school and sort of thinking about applying to, to medical school. And during biology, I was, during the sort of A-level biology course, I was very, very interested in human anatomy and also when it came to dissection and stuff, I reached a point where sometimes the teacher would use my sample as opposed to his sample because he'd sort of <laughs> maybe not dissected the aorta as, as well as he should on the sort of poor rat and so on. So that's where my head was at, I was, uh, I was definitely sort of going that way, but I'd always found taking pictures fascinating. I really enjoyed taking pictures from the age of about, I think about eight years old. I used to sort of take, you know, get the family camera, which was only reserved typically for birthdays, Easter and Christmas, and sort of take pictures of random things and nice shadows that chairs made. And Was that one film a year? <laughs> uh, it was supposed to be one film a year until, until little Edmund got his hands on it. And, uh, you know, to my parents' dismay, you know, there'd be picture after picture of weird, obscure stuff that wasn't family and birthday cakes or, you know, Christmas meals and stuff like that. Yeah, that kind of interest just stayed with me. And my godfather bought me my own camera. So I left the sort of family Kodak and had a 110 Fujifilm camera uh, back in the day, which I've still got somewhere. That was kind of a little bit liberating. But of course, film was always in short supply. And, you know, sort of roll on when uh, when I was almost 16, I'd saved up enough pocket money to get an SLR. And an older brother of a friend of mine was very influential. I loved looking at his pictures. He was a very sort of established amateur photographer, but very creative. And uh, he sort of took me under his wing and showed me his pictures and explained how he'd sort of made this picture and that picture. And let me play with some of his sort of proper gear. And uh, yeah, that's uh, he kind of took me on a shopping spree to, to High Street Kensington to... Techno, which is now long, long closed down, and uh, yeah, bought myself my first SLR uh, with his guidance, which was a Nikon EM uh, with a 50mm lens, and uh, yeah, the whole world opened up, my my eyes opened up, my heart opened up, uh, creativity and looking at things. And any second I I had spare, you know, I was still in high school, I'd sort of you know take the camera and go out and about and uh, and sort of start shooting everything, you know anything and everything interested me at the time
0: i love the fact that and i've said it in previous episodes as well everyone remembers their first camera I mm. remember that you know it's because it's so valuable to you and you've did you say you've still got it
1: sadly that well the very first camera i still have which is a Fuji film, but my first proper camera which was mm. the nikon i i sadly sort of sold it very cheaply to someone we had on work experience on uh on one of the newspapers i used to work on and you know she really needed a camera and she had she was very enthusiastic so i kind of sold of this camera for I think 30 40 quid or something like that and and of course you don't think about things like that at the time no you don't 20 years into my career I kind of started really thinking <laughs> oh, I wish I had that camera now you know it's because it's part of my own personal hist but uh, I did try and somehow find it but of course couldn't but I I, I did buy one on eBay just for sentimental value but it, it's of course it's not my yeah. camera but yeah. uh, you know sellvy
0: quite interesting how you got into photography as well because you applied to study a BA in photography at Manchester Polytechnic and tell us about that.
1: Yeah, So, you know, of course, the, the traditional sort of way into to any career is, is, is to sort of, you know, go to university or college or polytechnic, uh, learn, learn the skills and then sort of apply for a job. So, of course, by this stage, I'd sort of, to my parents' dismay, I'd, I'd left the idea of being a surgeon behind or sort of get going into medical school behind. I was up in my room, still living at home with my parents and my sister and uh, sort of looking through books. I, I used to love going to the library. Every couple of weeks, I'd come back with a whole pile of books which led me towards photojournalism because I found the work of Magnum photographers particularly mm. fascinating. People like Sal Godot and Nachtwey, the eye of Henri Cartier-Bresson as a street photographer and journalist. So that's kind of where I started heading. So then I applied to do BA at Manchester and uh, London College of Printing, as it was called then. And got rejections first time around and they said look you're too young you've just finished high school go and do a a foundation course in art and design so that'll sort of put you on track more visually and then come back and uh, apply again so I went and did that missed the deadline for universities that that next year so I started working eventually for for the local paper the Ealing Gazette which is a whole different story and then I applied again got got an interview at Manchester, went up there, had a brilliant, brilliant session. There was three of them interviewing me and they started grilling me and I started loving it because it was all about photography. And uh, I started having a really enjoyable chat. And I think that was kind of surprising for them as well, because I wasn't this kind of little kid sat on a stool, you know, being grilled by these three sort of authoritative figures. And the interview went really, really well. And uh, I was 100% sure I got it. It was that kind of gut feeling. And of course, a few weeks later, or a couple of months later, I got a rejection letter. No. I was so upset. And I phoned up immediately and spoke to someone in the admin uh, block in the photography sort of section. I said, there's been a clerical error. I've got a rejection letter. You know, this can't possibly be right. It sounds awful to say now, but I said it with that ego because it was just purely passion. It was, mm. I'm sure I got in because of the, the level of conversation we had. This lady was very helpful. She said, OK, look, let me go to see if I can find your file and see if they've made any notes with it. And she came back a few minutes later and said, they've actually said your portfolio is too strong wrong. So, there's no point in you doing a BA, which was kind of a compliment, of course, mm. hugely uh, complimentary. But on the other hand, I wanted to do a degree so I could be in this educational bubble and experiment and expand and try things and have a student loan. Have a student <laughs> loan, yeah. Yeah, God, I miss having to pay back a student loan, which I never had, yeah, and stuff like that. So, you know, it was kind of a, a, a twin edged kind of thing. But a few weeks later, after this rejection letter, I was already working at, at the local paper a few few weeks after that I uh, was a runner-up in a Kodak Press Awards and I kind of thought you know what actually this is my avenue this is my street mm-hmm. you know it's a shame I couldn't do that but I'm clearly on a path which isn't sort of too bad so I just sort of continued uh, with my career as, as I'd already started it you know I'd sort of started working in the local paper eventually with the aim of then taking a break doing a sort of a three-year degree and then going back to work you have to roll with it sometimes in life
0: yeah things happen for a reason I'm a strong believer in that Definitely. Absolutely, yeah. When you moved into the world of press photography, what was it, where did you sort of start?
1: So my local paper is called the Ealing Gazette. When I was... I think I was still 16 at the time, or 17, something like that. I was still in high school, still sort of aiming to do to do surgery. And we had a massive storm in the UK, and Ealing was one of the London boroughs which was most hit. I think it was the most severely damaged. Was that
2: the 87
1: one? Yeah, 87. That's right. That was the
2: that was the that was the Michael Fish. There's definitely not going to be a hurricane tonight, wasn't it?
1: That's it, that was exactly the one. I
2: remember yeah. going to work that next day, and it was like something out like the apocalypse, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just. Every Everything was just smashed to pieces, wasn't it? That was just like the end of the world, wasn't it? Absolutely. I think think you're right. I think West London got really badly trashed, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Especially Ealing because I think biggest number of trees or something like that. Yeah, yeah and so i was 17 uh if it was like seven, yeah, i was 17 at the time and my radio alarm clock went off early in the morning you know so uh i could get ready for school and i sort of really show, really showing your age there radio alarm clock i know i know i know i know it was uh it, it, it was dr fox on capital i think and uh and sort of i sort of got up you know cursing the alarms of course we all want to sleep in especially when we're kids and uh and he said, great news, kids, all the schools are shut because uh, there's been a massive storm. I kind of thought, great. And I sort of fell back fell back into bed joyously thinking, great, I can get, uh, can get a few more hours sleep. In. And then I immediately sat bolt upright in my bed thinking there's pictures to be had. And from nowhere, yeah. from just from looking at books on photojournalism, amazing work from Magnum, it had somehow sort of permeated in inside me that, this is photojournalism, this is what I want to do. And, Great uh, stuff, inspired. It, yeah, inspired and uh, w- with with no reason, I just uh, you know, I didn't even take my PJs off, I sort of put my clothes on top of my pyjamas, <laughs> I grabbed my little camera bag and I ran downstairs and my mum was, uh, oh there's no school, Radio saying schools are shut I said, I know but there's pictures to be had and I ran straight out the door, you know, the age awesome of seven. Awesome stuff. Yeah, I just, you know I didn't have a car of course and I didn't take the bike because it was windy and I started sort of walking around and running around everywhere and uh so you know cars that have been flattened by trees and went to uh to 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 uh sort of towards Ealing Broadway where there was a sort of a big park and took some you know amazing pictures actually you know trees that have been uprooted um great really sort of weird kind of stuff yeah I continued shooting and I and I shot Four rolls of film, which was huge for me, because you know, a roll of film you'd make last for a week or so. You know, at the age of seventeen, were many of them published? Well, this is the thing. So I shot four rolls of film, and I and I went, I headed straight to the Illingazat. Again, no training, no thought. I just knew I had to get these to the paper, and I sort of got to the Illingazat, and it was still early. And I got in, and I sort of managed to to get the receptionist to to let me go and see the the picture desk. And as I arrived their photographers were leaving to start documenting the event yeah so I'd already walked in having documented the event and the picture editor took one look at this sort of little kid who's got you know hello sir I've got four rolls of film you know these are great and he kind of begrudgingly took them in to to get processed I then phoned me saying that actually they were really good and the paper put together a 14 page supplement purely on the storm wow and, and how I old you then 17 17 yeah and I had that's pictures on every single page that's my, great my work at been published but without a single byline and have you, have you,
2: sorry sorry to interrupt if have, have you're
1: doing the same um, sort of thing with the lockdown because I suspect living in
2: London and with the deserted that must be really rich pickings for you at the moment the shots you can get there or not
1: well it's like I was saying earlier you know one has to be responsible this thing of just sort of walking around and just taking pictures yeah and, you know, of course, empty yeah. desolate streets you know I'm doing that when I'm out on an assignment, as opposed to just walking around, kind of, not aimlessly, but just walking around. Because again, you know, we have to be responsible. sure, Because we are carriers or transmitters, depending on on which way it sort of falls upon us. And of course, we know that, you know, people can have this thing and be totally asymptomatic. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we just need to be responsible. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I, I am making some work like that, but only if I'm already out on an assignment and I'll sort of take the long way around or, you know, sort of stuff. walk around, but, you know, fully kitted up with masks and so on. And yeah. Taking every precaution that, uh, that I can take.
0: Following on from you going out in storms and now we've got coronavirus, what's the most ridiculous thing you've ever done to get a shot? How far have you gone to get that shot that you needed? And
1: you knew that's... The money shot. <laughs> well, I, I suppose it depends what you mean by by ridiculous. I mean, as, as as a news photographer, as as a press photographer, you often do the opposite of what normal human beings do. Absolutely. You know, if there's if, if something's exploded, or if there's a big fire, or if there's been a shooting, or you know something like that, you tend to run towards it, where normal people run away from it, because the responsibility of a journalist is is to to be the eyes and ears of the population, to to witness what's going on, and then to document it accurately, and then to share it accurately, sort of without bias. There's probably many occasions where things have happened which logically make no sense that there was- fit that bill but I don't know, I mean something that immediately comes comes to mind is I, I once ran across a minefield which uh, wasn't very clever but Wow
2: was
1: uh, that <laughs> <healing>? <laughs> That wasn't <laughs> an Ealing bizarre <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah, that was in Nagorno-Karabakh. Where's that? It's in the Caucasus. It's, uh, oh, it used wow. to be an enclave of Armenia. It used to be kind of part of Armenia. And uh, right. they are still at war with Azerbaijan. And there's been a ceasefire that's been holding for, for many years now. And yeah, this uh, this soldier, Armenian soldier I was, uh, I was talking with, kind of said, you know, I really need to show you something. And there was clearly something wrong with him. He clearly had PTSD. And he just started running and sort of left me in this kind of trench and I kind of thought well it's probably safer I'm with him because at least he has a gun and he kind of knows his way around the front line whereas I was a total novice at the age of 24 one thing I'd, I'd heard from a, from a different soldier previously was that when they capture enemy ground there was a lot of wild grass so very tall grass kind of you know one and a half one to one and a half meter tall wild grass he said when we capture enemy ground we we light the fields on fire because then it's easier to demine them Oh. So this guy started running, and then all of a sudden I realised I was about seven or eight metres in a field with burnt wild grass. So it was clearly an enemy minefield. And I sort of stopped dead, and I screamed at this bloke, and I said, this is a minefield. And he said, yeah, I know, but don't worry, I know where they all are, which is, of course, ridiculous, because even if you've planted the mines, you don't know exactly where they are, let alone an enemy minefield. where God knows, you know, how many mines there are where they are. And I had this sort of split second decision of, okay, I've stopped now, do I go back? but how do I go back? I don't know where I've stepped. Or do I sort of watch exactly what he's doing and try and step in his footsteps as he carries on running to wherever he's going? And I decided that the, the second option was more logical. So I was like so intensely watching everywhere his foot landed to try and hit exactly the same spot. And he carried on running and I carried on running. And then we got into a bit that wasn't burnt and kind of, you know, a bit more sort of trees and stuff. So I kind of figured it would, it was, it was safer. Um, Wow. And yeah, so that was kind of quite, quite stupid but it's one of these things where you have to make last second decisions and uh, and of course with wisdom you learn that there are some minds that activate only after they've been clicked you know five ten times and you know oh. so there's, there's there's no certainties in uh, in, in stuff like this uh, what's
2: um what's in your kit bag at the moment edmund what you're using what's your kit of choice at the moment
1: mirrorless uh i've, I've completely mm-hmm. gone mirrorless now i mean yeah. for for years actually from the beginning of my of my career i was always drawn to smaller cameras so back in those yep. days that that was a leica i borrowed a leica when i was 19 from one of my father's friends who was a very keen photographer. He kindly lent he offered it to me and of course i couldn't say no so yeah. i always liked smaller smaller cameras so part of my kit is small mirrorless cameras, so that's basically the G9. I've got a couple of Lumix G9s uh, okay. with a bunch of Leica DG lenses, which is superb. I've got a GX9, which uses the same lenses, and it's a, it's a nice small it's great isn't I it, it. Yeah,
2: that's, that's Rossi's uh, weapon of choice for his street stuff as well yeah, yeah. It's, it's
1: fantastic such a great I'd, camera
2: I'd, I'd never used one of them before I tried Ross's one out on a street shoot yeah
1: incredible little things yeah yeah it's superb mm-hmm. it's uh, it's amazing how well how, how accomplished a camera it is because it's, it's beautiful, just beautifully
2: so built as well it feels so tiny, nice in the hand small. as well yeah.
1: Camera, yeah yeah absolutely I've always had sort of alongside this stuff always had Nikon or Canon DSLRs because sometimes you need a sort of longer lenses and so on. Now the Lumix G stuff has the long lenses which are great things like the 50 to 200 are one of my standard lenses now but sometimes you need that full frame aesthetic or much sort of uh, lower light performance so Ever since Lumix brought out the S series, I've switched to those as well. So all my mirrored cameras are now completely gone. So mm. I've got a Lumix S1 and an S1R uh, for the full full frame stuff with some stellar, stellar lenses, and then the Lumix G stuff with again a you know stellar set of lenses for lighter weight, easy travel stuff. And travel is such a big thing, you know. As a, a photojournalist, you know we're always we're often traveling on on assignments, and you get no leeway from the airlines. You know, it's fine if you're a surfer and you're taking a surf, you can get that on free. But if your camera bag's a little bit big or, you know, half a kilo over, you get penalized for it. So, you know, being able to have smaller cameras, lighter cameras, lighter lenses in a smaller pack it is astonishing. It's sort of so liberating to be able to pack everything and then still have loads of ample room left in uh, in sort of carry on l- roller lug.
2: I've got a really good tip for people listening for that, how I get all my camera gear and all my scuba gear. Um, people always say, how do I get so much kit? to Egypt what you do get yourself a photographer's vest load it up with as much stuff as you possibly can walk up to the desk with your carry on luggage get them to weigh it put the approved little sticker on walk away from the desk and then take everything out your pockets and stuff it in your Carry on bag. It's never failed. I've had over twenty-five kilograms in one of those little bags before. It's a really I'd, good way to do it. Yeah, get them to work, get them to put the little thing on it.
0: Have there's then no you, airlines you, listening, mate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm screwed.
2: I've, I've, been do, I've been doing it for years, years. and it's, it's a really good workaround. Otherwise, like you say, you won't get any leeway with it. It's the only way to get to get it on. So it's, yeah. it's a
1: really, really good trick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a press photographer's go-to thing as well. You know. Yeah. I've, I've travelled with colleagues who've slung a th- three hundred two point A on their shoulder and it's fine. If you put the same lens in a bag it's not fine.
2: That's the If you can carry it you can get it on
0: it's you know it's insane.
1: Yeah absolutely.
0: With the situation of the world it is at the moment and obviously your work is sort of really sort of condensed down what does a press photographer do to twiddle their thumbs and what have you been doing sort of to you know to keep yourself busy
1: one of the big problems we've got at the moment especially in in the uk specifically in the uk is that a lot of press photographers aren't allowed to work properly there's so much government censorship on what access photographers can get because a lot of the uh, you know a big part of this this pandemic is what's happening in the health service and how our, how our nhs is is coping with stuff and and the amazing stellar work they do you have never seen much images yeah well, this is the thing. If if you look at the the coverage of stuff from the United Kingdom now, and also think about it in twenty years' time, when historians look back and history students look back, all we're seeing now are pe- pictures of empty streets, pictures of people queuing with socially distanced stickers on the floor, pictures of people clapping. That's pretty much it it's almost like the NHS don't exist nobody got Mm. sick nobody sadly passed away and I don't mean this in any ghoulish way but this is this is an an immensely important issue and we're not being able to cover it properly in this country if you look at the the astonishingly powerful tear-jerking and informative work coming out of Italy for example or even the United States you're seeing work done by brilliant photojournalists of course in a respectful way who are documenting and sharing people's anguish and this is something which is photojournalists know but anyone outside of the sphere will will always find very difficult to comprehend is that it's it's always amazes me how much people want to share their story on the worst day of their life Mm. this could be because they've had a their child's been murdered or killed or they're about to die or, you know, when you're in these situations where it's life and death and it's literally that person's worst day ever, not always, but quite often they actually want to share that because they want to convey what's going on in their lives to make others understand what's, what's happened. And, you know, with, with the coronavirus, you know, this is the biggest issue the world has faced since World War II when you look at the UK, there's almost, it's almost like it didn't exist. People Mm. just didn't go out much and the trees grew greener and people queued with distance. And it's, it's awful because the NHS are doing such a stellar job. And the only glimpse we've got is, you know, I've been to a couple of hospitals on Thursday night where at 8pm, we've got the tradition of of clapping for, for our amazing health professionals. You know, some of them will come out between shifts and so on. You look at some of these nurses and some of these consultants and they're shell-shocked because of the horror of what they're going through but they're not allowed to talk about it because oh. government has told them you can't speak to the press they're not allowed to share the the struggles through through their working lives because there's no photographers there you know the only access has been sort of very pr uh shoot for the BBC a very pr shoot for the Guardian where everything was spick and span and almost like studio shot and I know Stuart Franklin from Magnum managed to do some work in one of the hospitals, but I haven't seen the series. I, I just saw one, one, one shot from that. But apart from that, there's nothing. Whereas, you know, you look at New York or, you know, Bergamo in Italy and so on. And, you know, the, the story's being told by, by responsible photojournalists because it's our responsibility to tell people stories. Otherwise, what's the point of existing? You know, it's, um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's, a, that's immensely frustrating. And of course, the other flip side to this, and, and I don't mean this to sound valiant or brave or anything, but you know, you'll often find that that a certain type of journalist or a certain type of photojournalist puts their duty. Way above everything else, you know. If we're talking about wanting to go into into a COVID nineteen war to tell a story, or we're going to front lines to tell a story, or we're going into earthquake zones, famine regions, and so on, there's a huge element of personal risk involved. And when you value the ability of someone else you've never met to tell their story over your own safety, surely that should account for something. Whereas now we've got a government who has gone out of their way to do everything to downplay this pandemic from massaging statistics you know not counting deaths outside of hospitals for example to making sure no one in the NHS talks to the media to making sure you know no one gets any access it's it's disgusting it's disgraceful
0: it's like you say it's like you say you sum it up you know a photojournalist like yourself they will run towards the the disaster if you like whereas normal everyday people like myself and Matt will hightail it in the other other direction because you're you're a completely different mindset and you know complete respect to you for what you do because uh it is a unique brand of photographer who goes out there to actually tell that story but when you're being limited to telling that story it's it's so frustrating you can hear that in your voice it's so incredibly frustrating Absolutely. You're being limited
1: to do your job. It's, uh, yeah, wow. it's saddening because, you know, we have a duty. You know, theres the, uh, I have many colleagues who are far braver than I and, and who've done, you know, much, much, much more important work than I have. But for all of us, it's kind of, you know, we speak with each other and uh, we send each other messages and it's just, it's heartbreaking not to be able to work. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean work in a case of, you know, do a job, get get paid for it. I mean work as in produce this very important documentation Mm -hmm. of what's happening in our time. And we can't do it i guess some people who are listening may think well the hospitals
0: don't want photographers in there because there'd be a load of photographers and they'll just run around and they'll take photos so this is the layman's term that people will think and i know that's not the way you work no, um, absolutely they,
1: not absolutely yeah. not and it's not a case of uh, you know you it's not like a photo call on a red carpet with a movie premiere where 30 photographers stand there screaming oh i love over here mate and all that kind of stuff it's a case of you let one photojournalist in who will spend a couple of days there. i mean i've i've worked on very sensitive stories in hospitals and stuff. Most of the time, and this is the biggest compliment to me, is people go, I didn't even notice you were here. Mm. And it's because if you're a real journalist, you blend into the background and you observe. You don't yeah. direct. You don't get underfoot. You don't get in the way. You know, I've worked in operating theatres many times. No one's ever come off any worse because you have to be aware of the story. You have to be aware of what's, uh, what's going on, you know, in situations w- which are fraught with danger. Again, it's about being self-aware, not for your safety, but for the safety of everyone around you. So if a photographer's doing their job properly, they're not even noticed. You know, it's a sort of a cliche, a fly fly on the wall, but that's very, very true because anyone who does this job properly realizes absolutely it's not their story, it's the subject's story. You're there to tell the subject's story and we must never ever forget that. Um, We're just a conduit to sort of, you know, take what's happening, translate it into, into words, into a TV footage, into sound or into photographs and convey that to the viewer or the listener.
0: The Tank Man photo is a classic example of that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the, the risk that Stuart Franklin, um, the chap from AP, whose name, sadly, I've forgotten. Uh, Jeff Weiner. That's right, yeah. You know, they went, you know, they put uh, th- their safety at, at tremendous risk. You know, God knows how many hundreds of people disappeared from Tiananmen Square, but they managed to, to get... You know these um, these astonishing pictures of the Tank Man, and uh, I managed to bring them out of the country. That's the second challenge. You know,
0: there's a really really good podcast on uh, PPN, and Jeff is on there, and he's actually telling the story of how they took it and how they got it out of the country. It's absolutely fascinating. Look it up. As, a, as, a, as a
2: photojournalist, Edmund, if you could travel back in time, what, what what would you have loved to have covered? Something that would have really got you. What, what do you think you'd have loved to have covered over the years?
1: My birth. <laughs>
2: from, <laughs> from, from, from anything to social stuff to war. If
1: you could travel somewhere and think, yeah, I, I could really do that justice. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I mean, so many things. This is, you know, go- going back to, to my own self-education in photography, you know, the pictures yeah. that moved me, I would have loved to have shot, you know, everything from, you know, so much powerful work from Vietnam, uh, so much powerful stuff from, from World War Two. you know several of the famines, things like Tank Man, you know, I would have loved to have been on the balcony next to Stuart Franklin, you know, making that, making that picture. Yeah, wow, it's an overwhelming question because there's so many things that I would have loved to have shot. I would love to have been in the open gold mine where Salgado made those astonishing pictures. That's one of the most powerful things that... uh, that I that, that I've ever seen and I'm not aware of that tell me that yeah so Sebastian salgado at the time was uh was fresh to photography mm-hmm. he he was an economist by trade yeah uh I think late 40s or early 50s he kind of picked up his wife's camera yeah she she's uh she was an architect and used used the camera as a as a sketch pad basically to okay t- tips of things that she was interested in and then sort of look at later so anyway he kind of took to the streets and really enjoyed it enjoyed taking mm-hmm. pictures and he started started going into it more and more a few uh, uh, you know some sometime after that he decided he was going to go to a place called Palada in brazil which was a massive open gold mine which kind of looked like a huge crater if you imagine like the biggest meteor hitting the earth and sort of
2: ross ross has just held a picture up to show me i'm yeah exactly what you're describing there yeah i'm getting the idea yeah Go on, carry on. So he, yeah.
1: he went to, uh, to this open gold mine and uh, all of his friends uh, sort of said, you're crazy for doing this. It's very dangerous. You're kind of an old man now. You only shoot in black and white. National Geographic just photographed this in colour. There's no point. Going and taking these pictures, yeah. But he did. He went and took these pictures, and his pictures became the definitive pictures from from Palada Um, Wow, and they're absolutely amazing. You know, there's there's a book he did called Workers, and there was a huge big chapter on just his work from this gold mine. One of those pictures from that set, which is often referred to as the Crucifixion, was one of the images that. Pushed me into realizing that photography is what I want to do in photojournalism, in, in uh, sort of specifically. And this, I uh, was having, I was having a discussion with another colleague of mine. You know, we we all hear this thing of, oh, don't do that; it's a cliche. Don't shoot that; it's a cliche. And yeah. what Saragosa did was kind of going against that because all the working at that Goldmine wasn't a cliche. Two very famous established photographers had already shot it. One for National Geographic in color. So the fact I'm yeah. going to shoot it was going to be a, you know, there's no point doing it. But he made the definitive set So anytime I hear someone say Oh well I didn't do it because it's a cliche I go well no Go and shoot it because you're, yeah, yeah. might be the definitive set from that. If you're just going to be copying, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a really good, that's a good nugget of advice for people, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because you know, if you're just copying someone, yeah, that's kind of worthless, unless you're at the right at the beginning of your journey and it's teaching you how to use a camera properly and how to compose and so on. That's one thing, yeah, but yeah. yeah, just copying people, yes, that's awful and it's naff and it's a cliche, but you know, you might make the definitive picture. Great stuff.
0: So, if someone wants to get into press photography, photojournalism, Edmund, what sort of advice, business advice, would you give them?
1: So, the face of photojournalism's changed uh, quite a bit. The face of press photographers changed quite a bit. You know, we used to have one of the traditional ways in was the local newspaper. So, you know, if, if you're already good and you were committed enough, you know, you'd start working with a local paper and push push your way up, get some experience, get some uh, great shots. Now the local newspaper scene has practically disappeared, which is to the detriment of society. You know, if we look back to the Grenfell Tower fire the tragedy. If the local paper there was a strong local paper, that would have been a local story that the residents were campaigning for years about getting this flammable cladding off their building. But it's not a national newspaper story because it's a local pressure group. And there's no local newspapers really covering that story. So it never went anywhere. And the council and the government got away with it until it caught fire. And of course, then we know what happened. So local papers are really, really have always been important for for local issues, but sadly we've we've lost that. So that avenue is closed. So the, by far the most important thing is is the portfolio, and it's about covering relative, you know, important stories, uh, stories that will relate to who you want to work for. This is the other thing. It's uh, if we look at just the newspaper scene in in uh, in the UK, for example, you know, you've got the tabloids, you've got the broadsheets, two distinctly different types of photography, two distinctly different types of uh, of of sort of news. Uh, news items covered and then of course you've also got the magazine scene and so on so i think it's important for someone to to realize where they want to work what kind of work they want to do and then produce a portfolio that mirrors that if you want to work for the sun for example it's pointless going in there with beautifully lit creative black and whites which ooze atmosphere and because they need tight bright you know, investigative work or celebrity nonsense, that's that's what's needed. Whereas, you know, of course, the opposite is true. If you want to work for The Guardian, you don't go and take them 20 pictures of some c celebrity you photographed uh, in Leicester Square at movie premiere. So it's uh, it, it's sort of about highlighting that. But it's also the, the most important thing, probably before that, is is making sure this is what you want to do and you've got the mindset to do it. You know, it's one thing wanting to be a photographer... But it's one thing, it's another thing, wanting to be a photojournalist because it takes a, a particular mindset, a particular dedication. I guess in a way it's almost the calling so, you know, you need to have those qualities of, of being OK with never having a weekend anymore. Night and day blending into one, you know, not eating properly for, for yonks. So, you know, all sorts of stuff that you don't realise. Very early on, I discovered, you know, my, my friends would be, oh, great, it's the weekend and we're doing this on Saturday. I'm like, well, I'm working. So well, how can you be working? It's eight o'clock on a Saturday. It's so, like well, that's when the assignment. Is. And this was from the local newspaper days. So you sort of very early on, you realise that you're either dedicated or you're not. You know, if you're doing investigative work, it's kind of like, you know, police surveillance kind of thing. You know, you might be sat outside some dodgy MP's house or or some dodgy businessman's house for 12 hours because you're keeping an eye on on what comings and goings and what they might be doing. You know, stuff like that isn't for everyone. And even simple things like, you know, photographing the prime minister or a dignitary visiting Downing Street you have no idea how much hassle that is because you've got to get there hours early, go through security, stand on a ladder because there's so many people, so many photographers there and wait for four, five, six hours sometimes in the rain always in the cold because the side of the street the presser on is always in the shade so even in the middle of summer it might be 32 degrees centigrade outside but the second you walk into downing street it's like 15 so you know simple things like that you need to be sort of driven to want to do this work
0: so how how does a uh, photojournalist switch off i know you're you're an avid street photographer as well but what do you how do you sort of relax your mind
1: I think you never really switch off, you know, when, when you hear a big story's happening, you'll want to co- sort of cover it and to do it justice, that sort of passion and responsibility sort of kick in. But I found that there's certain types of work I do which are an antidote to the stressful side of some of the assignments I do uh, street photography as you mentioned is is one of them I, I love street photography and I think anyone regardless of what genre of photography they're into should get into street photography because absolutely it's meditative it relaxes your mind it also sharpens your skill it sharpens the speed at which you work so you know this sort of um, skill set lends itself perfectly to photojournalism, lends itself perfectly to wedding photography, lends itself perfectly to portrait photography. You know, waiting for that nanosecond where that expression is absolutely perfect and being able to work quickly and, and, and catch it, you know, these things are important. And one thing I found brilliant to do as, as a relaxation is fashion photography. Uh, I've covered many sort of London Fashion Weeks, both catwalk and also behind the stage and this i found was a perfect way to balance things out and you know be in this environment where everything is so fake everything is so made up but then looking for those moments of you know glimpses of sort of reality and stresses from models and so on or light and shade and whatever so it's uh, it's, it's 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 these things but i don't think i ever fully shut down because photojournalism isn't just the photography side is the journalism side so i'm always reading uh, and every time i read something bad about a story in this country or abroad you know if the, if an injustice is being committed it it upsets me tremendously so sadly I, I i don't i don't think i actually completely switch off
0: i think that's i think that sort of goes pass and parcel with a with a good photojournalist really you know that's your mindset and that's the way you work in your genre like you know i, I can switch off Matt, it's always switched off. <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> oh, you're still there. All right. But uh, just touched on one of my uh, questions I was going to ask you there. I was going to ask you uh, just for a bit of fun. I was going to go, movie or books? But I think you've already answered that one straight away. Books. I'd say that would be for you. So I'll, I'll jump on the next one I've got for you.
1: I, I mean, yeah, but, I, I like movies too, but uh, yeah. I mean, part of that's, you know, I do some video work, so I, I, I guess there's there's always an in, an interest in that. But anyway, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, no video work. So, what what sort of your work's involved in video? It's always short documentaries, short film documentaries. That's that's the kind of work I like doing. I mean, so, you know, from the commercial side of my work is, of course, what the client needs and that's fine. But but most of my sort of film work, video work is, is to do with short documentaries. And I bring my photojournalism into it. Everything from audio has to be live and real audio. No Foley, no retakes, nothing like that, because that is like, you know, Photoshopping something, which is, of course completely unethical for a photojournalist. But uh, I I like telling short stories. One of the first things that got me interested in in video was at the same time that sort of Canon brought out the 5D Mark II, which meant that we now had a piece of kit that could shoot video with soul and with feeling, because camcorders could never do that. One of the first things uh, I heard which got me interesting was uh, I was having a conversation with Vincent LaFore, who at the time was at the New York Times, and he's turned into a phenomenal filmmaker. And he said, you know, for some stories, pictures just don't cut it, which as a photojournalist was like, how dare you say such a thing? But he said, look, think about it. Think think of something as... ridiculous as someone eating a plate of pasta and wanting to say how delicious it is or how horrible it is. In a photograph, you can only do sort of very corny kind of pictures, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, or a dodgy expression. Whereas if it's video and there's audio, you can watch, you can hear, you can really feel... A very simplistic way of looking at it, but it was it actually resonated a lot, and it sort of opened my eyes to actually, you know, what there's the right tool for the right story, and some stories do work better if uh, if they're told as a short film. And probably the the one I'm most proud of was, uh, along with Neil Patience, um, a great friend and, and uh, video editor, but, uh, we made uh, a fundraising film for the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore, and you know, we spent about seven months filming stuff at the hospital, everything from patient interviews to, you know, surgeons at work and so on, that worked really well. And the best thing was when we showed the client, you know, this is sort of make or break, you know, when you have a viewing for the client we showed the client and all that happened was there was about a minute silence once it finished and then sniffling and tears and we thought right we've we've done it justice you know
0: before that there was a few beads of sweat running down your forehead with that minute silence (laughs) oh
1: absolutely yeah absolutely because you know you're so focused on doing this thing and we spent ages editing it and i sort of came to the edit suite a few times and we worked together and uh, yeah it's you know it's kind of a it's a very solo kind of existence you know doing the kind of work we do and with the film although there was two of us working on it again it's kind of just the two of us in this environment and it's when you show it to the public or you show it to your client that's kind of when you realize you either did it properly or you didn't you got too caught up in your own sort of creative workflow or, or whatever so yeah oh that's fantastic so once we come
0: out of all this Edmund where's the first place you're going to go
1: <laughs> uh, this is the romantic in me talking now I'm going to rush in, uh, and, and meet meet my girlfriend Yoshi Who lives in Milan uh, Who's sort of stranded and stuck in Milan And I'm stuck in London So yeah, not, not a professional answer just uh, Just a human answer there Oh,
0: that's a great answer. I think that's that's a fantastic, fantastic answer. I thought I had a little inkling you might say something like that. I don't know why, but <laughs> with with all the FaceTime and Zoom calls you've been doing with her and stuff, but I think that's very, very sweet.
1: Yeah, we did the most surreal thing. It's kind of you know COVID nineteen way of life is you know everything's on Zoom or Skype nowadays. Uh, we were both very lucky in being shortlisted at the Pink Lady Food Awards, and uh, of course the award ceremony was cancelled, but there was a YouTube live announcements of the awards kind of like a ceremony so we had a zoom call between the two of us and on half the screen and half the screen was watching youtube and sort of having a drink and uh, yeah very weird way of attending an award ceremony with 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 your date who is also shortlisted kind of thing it's very strange it's the new normal isn't it it is it is indeed indeed
0: edmund it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today mate and listen to your stories and i know you've got a hundred more to tell so i'm sure we'll hear from you again if you want to look up edmund Storkham do you like to do you can follow his blog all the details are down below you'll be able to see everything his website and all the social media thank you again mate it's been a pleasure it's been fantastic
1: cheers my, my, my pleasure too really really good to chat with you guys so take care keep safe everyone